Good morning. And Happy New Year. I uh, hope it's been a good uh, end to the year, and I hope that the next year is, is really good as well. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for being here this morning. And I uh, just want to ask you this question. It's December 29th, 2019. Here's the question. How many of you have been able to fulfill your New Year's resolution that you set on January 1st? Any hands? One. Two. Okay. What was that? Okay, I was expecting this. I was expecting that type of response. You didn't. You didn't make any resolution. Samuel, did you make a resolution? Yes, I did. Which what? What was it? Uh, find God. Find God. There you go. That is awesome. So that that sort of trumps you not making a resolution right there. I want you to know that. Anytime there's a resolution that involves finding God, that's a great thing. And so we're grateful that you're with us, Samuel, and, uh, and that's good stuff. So we make these New Year's resolutions on January 1st with the sole intent of holding on to that resolution, of being able to fulfill that resolution. But then we wake up and it's December 29th and we're thinking, what just happened? A number of years ago, I made a resolution, and it was this. I, there was only one book in the Bible that I had not read yet, and it was Leviticus. And so I made a resolution on January 1st of, the, of, of that year, of that particular year. I said, said, my resolution is to read Leviticus. And I had, I had sputtered throughout it and things like that. Many of you know this. Leviticus drives me nuts. I'm not a fan. Uh, frankly, and I know that sounds bad for a pastor to say he's not a fan of a particular book of the Bible, but I'm really not a fan of Leviticus. And so I made that vow, I made that resolution, if you want to call it that, and was bound and determined that I was going to nail that thing without any problem at all. So that night I read a couple chapters, and then it was December 31st. And I sat there as I woke up that morning, that, that morning on New Year's Eve, and I said, I still have a whole lot more of Leviticus to read. I said, I'll get to it. So at 11 p.m. that night, I said, I'm going to fulfill this resolution. I had it done by 11.49 that evening. And, uh, but it's, but it's, it's something time flies. We make these resolutions, and we, we really want to fulfill them, and yet, here's the thing. Here's what happens. Time keeps moving. Time keeps moving. It doesn't stop at all. It doesn't stop for any of us. And it continues moving, and at least what I'm experiencing as I get older is this, is that it continues moving faster and faster and faster. I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, and I want to start here because, because Mark under, I think Mark understood better than, than some of the other gospel writers, and frankly, I think perhaps all the gospel writers, Mark perhaps understood how quickly time can move. And in Mark chapter 1, Mark opens with these words, and, it, and it, it, they, they come out like a, a blast out of a cannon. Verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Boom. He's off and running. There's no birth narrative. There's no genealogy. There's no, there's no mention of Jesus' birth. There's no mention of Jesus' childhood. Mark simply launches. He launches in with this statement that this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. 
Now here's what's interesting. You would expect with him launching that quickly that, that all of a sudden you would begin to pick up on all these different words that he's using about Jesus being the Messiah, about being the Son of God and things like that. But here's what happens as we go through this is Mark rarely mentions anything between Mark 1 and Mark 8 that Jesus is the Messiah. You would think if he's opening up this case of saying, I am writing this gospel to prove that the Messiah is Jesus Christ. I'm writing this gospel to prove that, that I am going to tell you over and over and over again that he's the Messiah, and I'm going to use that terminology all the time. But what ends up happening is he really doesn't do it. He doesn't mention it much at all until we come to this place in Mark chapter 8 that we're going to look at here in a few minutes. But here's, what, here's a thing that I find fascinating. He might not necessarily say Jesus the Messiah between Mark 1.1 and Mark 8 where we are today. But he does something very creative. He drops clues along the way. As you read Mark 1, you can't help but see these clues as they build to this place. And we come to this place where there is this mountaintop experience that the apostles have with Jesus Christ. We pick it up in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Father, we pray now as we come to this time of looking at your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through your word, that you'd speak to us by opening our eyes that we could see, opening our ears that we could hear, opening our minds that we could understand, and opening our hearts that we would be transformed by the reality that Jesus Christ, that you, Jesus Christ, are the Messiah, the Son of God. And I pray, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would move in our midst so that we could then be able to deal with the biggest question ever asked and that we would be able to answer that question with a solid, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, our Savior. So, Lord, work in our midst. May no one hear anything I say, but may they only hear what it is that you want them to hear, that you need them to hear. And Lord Jesus, may you receive every last bit of glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From Mark chapter 1 to Mark chapter 8, as you read through it, you will understand this, that the popularity of Jesus Christ is on an upward trajectory. He is getting more popular. He is getting more powerful as far as people's understanding of who he is. But it's constantly moving. And we come to this point in Mark chapter 8 where everything changes. This passage, these few verses that we just read, are believed to be the hinge of Mark's gospel. 
from this point, you have this buildup of who, of, of all these different things that he's done. And from here on out, it's only going to get more difficult for Jesus Christ. This passage speaks volumes. This passage speaks volumes, and it starts with this question, and it's a big question, and it's, and it's this, what's the word on the streets? What are people saying about me? As I stated a few moments ago, concerning the way Mark opens his gospel, he launches this gospel by saying that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, but then he doesn't do much about it at all. But yet, Jesus Christ has been doing amazing things since, since, since Mark 1. Demons have been cast out. Deaf people now hear. Mute people now speak. Two women, one older and, and the other the only daughter of a Jewish leader, living in a society who has absolutely no regard for women, have now been healed of their suffering. A storm that petrified the apostles has been calmed by Jesus Christ. Five loaves of bread and two fish were transformed into a dinner buffet for about ten to 12,000 people one day. Jesus walks on water. Parables have been told. And right before this particular event happens, a blind man gets his sight. All types of clues have been dropped along the way by Mark to say, I said that Jesus is the Messiah, and I'm showing you that he's the Messiah by all these different things that the Messiah has done. And so Jesus Christ now comes to this place where he asks the guys, what are people saying about me? It's a big question. It's a big question. And what the reality is for Jesus is that he knows that time is drawing closer and closer and closer for him to go to the cross. The time is drawing near for him to go pay for humanity's sin. He knows that's coming. And so he wants to know what's going on. And in Mark's gospel, as he asked this question, Jesus has heard what they've said. And here are a few things that have been said about Jesus. First off, Many people thought he was a troublemaker. Some people thought he was possessed by a demon. And by the way, it was his own family that thought that. Can you imagine that family dinner conversation? A little bit crazy. Some people thought he was crazy. And many people considered him simply a miracle worker. All of these different opinions that people had about him. But for as long as Jesus Christ has been around, and that day and to this day, people have an opinion about Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to ask, to get up the courage and ask a friend of yours, what's their opinion of Jesus Christ? Everybody has an opinion of him. Everybody does. More books have been written about Jesus Christ than any other person in history. People have an opinion of him. And each of us has connections in our life, and those connections, each one of those people has, each one of those people that is a connection in our life has an opinion about Jesus Christ. I encourage you just to simply say, hey, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Just ask them. Find out what they have to say about him. Because people have an opinion. And for Jesus, it's an easy question to ask. 
It's an easy question to ask. And so we come to verse 28. They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. His big question of what's the word on the street leads to this question, can one ever be larger, be greater than three? So the apostles respond with this, with these three types of folks, Elijah, John the Baptist, and one of the prophets. So let's talk about each one of these individuals. Jesus is compared to Elijah. Why Elijah? Why Elijah? Well, a couple things to realize is this, is that the meaning of Elijah's name is this, the Lord is my God. Huh, that's sort of interesting. Elijah also healed a dead widow's son. Elijah also took on the prophets of Baal and won. Elijah called down fire from heaven. Elijah had an encounter with God at at the mouth of a cave where God spoke to him in a small, still voice. And here's the other thing about Elijah. He never died. Sort of interesting, isn't it? Jesus gets compared to Elijah. That's a pretty good move. Pretty impressive to be compared to Elijah. Then, he's also being compared to all types of other prophets. The prophets proclaimed a message that people needed to get right with God. The prophets talked about a kingdom that was unlike any kingdom this world had ever seen. The prophets proclaimed a message for all people that God was righteous, holy, and deserved their worship. The prophets brought a message that told people it was not about the external, but it was about the internal, about having a heart of generosity, justice, and mercy. The prophet's message also wasn't embraced by many people. I wonder if Jesus has any similarities to those guys. He proclaimed a kingdom that was unlike any other kingdom. He proclaimed that the internal is far more important than the external. He, complained, he, he, he proclaimed the importance of generosity, justice, and mercy. He's being compared to, to these prophets, and so it makes sense that maybe Jesus is one of the prophets. And then he's also compared to John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Interesting character, isn't he? Guy that, that dressed in, 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 in just bizarre stuff, had a crazy diet. I challenge you, I, I would encourage you to make a resolution to do the John the Baptist diet. Locusts and honey. See how long they last on that one. Bizarre diet. John the Baptist had a calling on his life, and get this calling that he had. The calling on his life was this, to help people turn back to God. John the Baptist spent the bulk of his life in the wilderness. John the Baptist took on the authorities in his day and and told them that they were in the wrong. He had this unbridled vigor. And John the Baptist dies this incredibly gruesome death. Jesus is compared to John the Baptist? Makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Jesus proclaimed a message that people need to turn back to God. Jesus never backs down to any authority whatsoever. And Jesus Christ would ultimately die the most gruesome death humanity 
could ever execute. He's compared to these three types of folks. And it's not bad to be compared to any one of those three types of folks. And every single one of these individuals has one common theme. And it's this, and this is important. Each of them is a precursor of something better. Something better is coming. And not a one of them is the main attraction. It's simply pointing to the main attraction. To be compared to Elijah, John the Baptist, and the prophets, that's fine. But here's what happens, is that Jesus Christ is no precursor. Jesus Christ is the main attraction. He's radically different than these three types of folks. And so the apostles have heard the word on the street. They say that you're compared to, to this, to this, and to this person. You're compared to these people, and then all of a sudden things change. We go from a big question of what's the word on the street to another question, can one ever be greater than three, to the biggest question, and it's in verse 29. But what about you? Who do you say I am? The biggest question they've ever been asked in their lives. There is no bigger question than that question. There's no bigger answer that they could come up with. It's the biggest question they've ever been asked, and the question is loaded with a whole lot of tension. And Mark, like I said, has given us clues along the way from Mark 1.1 all the way to this place that Jesus Christ really is the Messiah. And now we come to this place where Jesus is saying, who do you say I am? I've heard what you've said about all these people. I get it. But I want you to answer this question, who do you say I am? Now, here's one of the great things about the gospel writers, and frankly, any of the Bible writers, is that they, they're not very, they don't just hodgepodge things together and they just say, oh, I'll say this story now, I'll say this story now. No, and, and you can just read it, whatever. You need to see there's a flow here. If you have your Bibles open, keep, move a few verses back in Mark chapter 8, and let's look at verse 22, because Mark includes a miracle that is in no other gospel. He includes this miracle at this place, at this juncture. And I think he does it for a reason, which I'll explain in a few moments. Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Of all the miracles that Jesus has performed, this is the only miracle that seemed to take two touches. Jesus turns water into wine. Boom. Jesus walks on water. 
wasn't like he stumbled and then got his, his feet under him. He was walking. He didn't tell the storm to be calm twice. He said it once. He didn't touch the person's ears twice to get them to have their hearing restored. It happened once. When this man brings his, his son who was having a seizure, Jesus didn't simply keep touching, to, touching the young child. He touched him once and he was healed. But here, we have a miracle that seems to take, to take place in two parts. Why? Why this miracle? Why here? And why in no other gospel? Here's what I believe and what many other people believe. Is that this miracle, Mark put this story here because it happened, and he put it here because people were not quite having a clear view of who Jesus Christ is. That they were beginning to see who he was, but it was still a little murky. And it's why Jesus now asked the apostles, who do you say I am? Of all the people that need to have a clear understanding of who Jesus Christ is, it's the apostles. They've been with him for three years. So this miracle happens in two parts, and, and, and he touches the man's eyes, and the man can start to see, and then he touches his eyes again, and he can see clearly. We have people who have an opinion about who Jesus is, and he's, he's compared to all these wonderful people in the Bible, but it's not quite clear enough, and now he comes to this place of wanting and, and, and hoping that the apostles are seeing clearly who he was, and we read these words, verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. We read that and we say, oh, that's nice. Bethsaida, where the blind person is healed, is 32 miles away from Caesarea Philippi. This wasn't exactly on the route that they were taking. But Jesus Christ has intentionality. And he knew what he was doing. He heals this blind man. And now he takes them on a road trip to Caesarea Philippi. Here's something that you need to know about Caesarea Philippi. It was a decadent place. Archaeologists have spent tons of time there. And over the course of their time that they've spent there, and this is the reason why it was, there's so much decadence there, over the course of time, they have discovered more than 20 temples dedicated to a variety of gods. Caesarea Philippi was this, was this hotbed of all types of religious belief. One of the temples was dedicated to the worship of Caesar. One of the temples was dedicated to the Greek god Pan. There were a variety of other pagan cults there with all the illicit behavior that goes with those pagan cults there. And here's one other thing. There was an also an area in, this, in, in Caesarea Philippi that the locals called the Gates of Hell. It was believed that the Canaanite god Baal traveled from earth and hell through this particular area. 
Jesus took the apostles to Caesarea Philippi, knowing full well what that location was all about. Knowing full well that there were all types of other gods being worshipped there. Knowing full well that the people referred to a particular location as the gates of hell. It was rich with competing gods. It was rich with competing goddesses and emperor worship. This place was loaded with all types of pagan stuff going on and decadence. Yet notice who arrives. Jesus Christ. He enters into this town with his team. And they are outnumbered from a worldly perspective like nobody's business. It's 13 of them versus all types of, of pagan worship, all types of, of emperor worship, all types of everything going on there. Every belief system known to humanity at that time. And Jesus Christ arrives on the scene. He asks the question, who do you say I am? And you can almost imagine the 12 apostles looking around as they see all these different pagan practices going on. And perhaps they look off in the distance and they see this area that is known as the gates of hell where Baal, the Canaanite god Baal travels to and from earth to hell. They're looking all around. They're seeing this, that they are outnumbered, that they, that they have no, they, they, their numbers aren't big enough, and that when they answer this question, it's going to say so much. They had seen Jesus do a variety of miracles. They had seen Jesus teach in powerful ways. They had seen Jesus confront the religious leaders of the day, provide food to thousands of people. But this was some experience unlike any other because now they're in the hotbed of paganism. They are in this place of decadence. They are in a place where people are worshiping all types of stuff, and Jesus is now asking the question, who do you say I am? I'm well aware where we are right now, fellas. I'm well aware that Caesar's being worshipped. I'm well aware that Pan's being worshipped. I'm well aware that right over there are they, are, are this, is this area considered the gates of hell. I'm well aware of what's going on all around us. And I'm asking you this question right now. Who do you say I am? There is no bigger question asked in the history of humanity. No bigger question. No bigger question. Who do you say I am? Verse 27, he says, who do the people say I am? And notice the response in verse 28. It says that they replied. Everybody, all the guys answer and say, you're John the, some people say John the Baptist. Some people say Elijah. Some people say one of the prophets. Now Jesus says, who do you say I am? And notice the response. There's only one that responds. Because they knew where they were and they knew that this answer was going to cost them. You can almost see the 11 look at Peter and say, listen, you talk all the time. Please answer for us now. 
It's the biggest question that they'd ever been asked. It's the biggest question that anyone's ever asked. And Peter responds and says this, you are the Messiah. In an area rich with all types of crazy beliefs, in an area where people believe the gates of hell were actually right there, in an area where Caesar is worshipped as Lord of all, in an area that, that, that is just so complicated with all types of pagan deities, in that area, Peter declares this, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah who has come to rescue humanity. In that area where everybody else is worshiping all types of things and is dedicating their lives to all types of different gods and goddesses and and all types of different items, Peter says, you are the Messiah. It's the biggest question and it's the biggest answer. There are big questions in our lives. For young people that are in here this morning, Your questions are big. What do I do about this final that's coming up? What do I do about college? Am I even supposed to go to college? For you young parents in here, what do I do about my son who doesn't seem to want to do anything that makes sense? What do I do about the fact that my children seem to be going in this way and that way and not in the right way? For some in this room, what do I do about my job? It just got laid off. What am I going to do? How do I provide for my family? For some of you in this room, how do I care for my parents? who are getting older? How do I care for my neighbors that are struggling with physical issues? For many in this room, this question, how do I fix my marriage? Because we're in trouble. All of those questions are big questions. All of those questions cause us to stop. But not a one of those questions is bigger than who do you say Jesus Christ is? There is no bigger question. And the reason why it's the biggest question ever asked is because the answer that you give to that question informs the answer to every other question that you'll ask in your life. The way we live our lives provides the answer to how we answer that question.
we come here on Sunday mornings and we sing praises to God. Yet when the world around us outnumbers us, do we still say, Jesus Christ, you are my Lord. When life gets difficult, when tensions mount, do we continue to answer the question, yes, Jesus, you are my Lord. The reason why I picked this Sunday to talk about this particular passage is because so often, year after year after year, time flies and we don't pay attention to what our answer is to that question. We just simply go from one day to the next day to the next day, and before we know it, another year's gone. But the answer that we give to that question dictates how we will then live our lives. Jesus Christ is concerned about what people have to say about him, but he is mightily concerned about what you say about him. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? Because the answer to that question should show up and will show up in your life. Mark has dropped clues about who the Messiah is all throughout Mark's gospel from Mark 1 all the way to Mark 8. And we can move beyond and just say, look at all this stuff. Your life matters to God so much that he asks you this morning, who do you say he is? Do you say he's Lord? Do you say he's Savior? Do you say he's the one that you've placed your trust in? Because your life then is radically different. It's, a, it's the biggest question. And as we ponder the answers to those questions, we ponder our own answer to that question. We're going to sing a couple songs here in a few moments. I want to invite the, the band to come back up. But as they get ready, and as we get ready to continue on singing, I want you to wrestle with who do you say Jesus Christ is? As you take a look at your life, who do you say Jesus Christ is? Do you simply say he's a miracle worker and that's it? Do you simply say that he is a great teacher and that's it? Do you simply say he was a nice guy and that's it? Or do you say that Jesus Christ is the one true God who saves humanity and has saved you. Who do you say he is? Father, we pray. We pray now as we process through this time. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us how to respond. We pray that your Holy Spirit would cause us 
to look at our lives right now. And wonder just what it is, what our answer is to that question. Father, we confess to you that it's so easy to say different words about who Jesus Christ is, to believe that, that you, Lord, are a great teacher, you're a great miracle worker, you're, you're this and you're that, but Lord, it is a whole different ballgame. It's a whole different ballgame when we say that you are our Savior, you are our Lord, and we then live lives that reflect that. So Lord, in the midst of the stillness in this room right now, as we reflect on our lives, may your Holy Spirit move in such a way that we would realize that you, Lord Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of God, our Savior. And for those in this room who don't, have not professed that faith, that trust, Lord, would you move in such a way that they would realize that their answer to that question is the greatest answer they'll ever give to any question whatsoever. Father, help us. And thank you for Jesus Christ coming and living among us and for wanting to know our answer to that big question. Do your work. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing.